Tonight, death threats on college campuses and students planning to sue their schools for not doing enough to protect them are exploring hate report on the divide at universities over the war in the Middle East. Then, HBO takes us to The Stroll, a place where transgender women solicited sex in the meatpacking district and created a community that protected one another from harassment and violence. Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Ramon, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sylvia A. and Simon B. Poita Programming Endowment to Fight Anti-Semitism, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, Charlotte and David Ackert, Tiger Barron Foundation, Nancy and Morris W. Offit, Josh Weston. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. In just the latest incident of anti-Semitism on a college campus, a 21-year-old Cornell student was arrested for threatening to kill Jewish classmates, shoot up a kosher dining hall, and slit the throat of any Jewish men he came across. In response, Governor Hochul has directed state police to increase security at colleges and universities across New York, but many Jewish students still feel their schools are not doing enough to protect them. A group of Jewish students from elite schools like Cornell and Harvard are now planning to sue their universities, accusing them of turning a blind eye to the growing hatred. Since the Israel-Hamas war began, there have been many reports on college campuses here in New York and across the country of violent threats, intimidation tactics, public doxing, and even assaults. Student supporters of both Israel and Palestine have expressed fear for their safety in recent weeks. And joining us now with much more on the increased violence and fear that we are seeing on college campuses is Melissa Korn. Now, Melissa is a reporter who has been covering this story for the Wall Street Journal, and she joins us as part of our Exploring Hate initiative, examining the intersection of anti-Semitism racism, and extremism in America. Melissa, welcome to Metrophone. Having me. So first off, Melissa, I just want to start with that story I mentioned at the time at Cornell University, who's been arrested. Uh, can you tell us what you know um, has happened thus far? Sure. So over the weekend, there were uh, messages that were posted online threatening violence against Jewish students, against a a uh, Jewish dining, a uh, kosher dining hall, and great concern among students for their safety, uh, what this meant, how real this threat was. And uh, an individual, a uh, current student, 21-year-old, was arrested uh, for you know, allegedly making these threats and causing quite a panic on campus the last few days. Of course. And I'm also wondering, <clears throat> excuse me, for the uh, lawsuit that a group, two groups of students, at least that we know of uh, at elite colleges, are planning to file, um, 
is this something that we've ever seen before? Students suing their college campuses for not doing enough to keep them safe. You know, I'm not sure if there have been past, but there's definitely kind of a new level of concern among students, both Jewish students and Muslim students, uh, students who are Palestinian or who are assumed to be Palestinian, uh, students who are Israeli or assumed to be Israeli, real concern that their schools are not protecting them enough, are not speaking up for them enough, and are not uh, kind of criticizing the Uh other side, if you will, enough. Of course. And speaking of that, I mean, college campuses in America have long been uh, a, a I don't want to say a hotbed, but a place where there have been uh, protests and competing ideas and debates. And that's what a lot of college campuses like to pride themselves on. Why is this a situation where this is causing much more friction than it seems to have in the past? Right. This has gone from any sort of an academic discussion or debate or a history lesson to something that is really fueled by emotion, uh, oftentimes fueled by uh, misunderstanding. And it's people shouting at each other rather than having a conversation and learning from each other, which, as you said, is something that campuses pride themselves on being able to do, provide a, a, a forum for that. And we've seen this really step up. The thing that I find perhaps most interesting about what we're seeing in the current moment on college campuses is these rather strange bedfellows of who's coming together to stage these protests and demonstrations, who's speaking mm-hmm. out, uh, saying that they're in support of Palestinians, that they are against Israel, and in some cases that they are against Jewish students more broadly. And again, there seems to be a lot of uh complication around what word, what terminology they're using uh, when they're talking about supporting or opposing a particular group of individuals around the world. So you've got students who are uh, had been you know active in Black Lives Matters, students who are active in LGBT groups, climate uh, change organizations who are now front and center in some of these demonstrations on campuses, uh, supporting Palestinians and calling for you know, the, the end of Israel. Wow. Okay. And so um, for some of these universities, because we've also seen the university themselves as an institution sort of get caught in the middle where uh, before perhaps people were able to, especially I'm thinking of university presidents, being able to sort of walk the line of releasing a statement that uh, perhaps condemns or acknowledges that this is a difficult issue and that there's two sides, et cetera, that a lot of university presidents seem to have an incredibly difficult time being able to walk that line of neutrality. Is that even something that's possible anymore? Uh, It's kind of the the toothpaste out of the tube on this one already. For a number of years, university presidents have been making statements about political topics about uh, social justice issues. And they've increasingly seen it as their role is saying, you know, we have a soapbox, we're going to use it. We are a voice of reason. And hopefully our statement will help set the stage or give some context for what is happening in the world around us and provide some informed uh, insight and opinion here. The thing is, they can't stop doing it all at once, right? So even though this is perhaps a more divisive issue than some of the others on which they've 
they've spoken in past years, things like mass shootings, um, the the devastation of natural disasters, they come out with statements, things like that. You know, the, the current moment is a lot more complicated and a lot more tense. And for them to all of a sudden go quiet now in itself can send a message, right? That somehow this is deemed to be not worthy of their of their time, of their statements, of their words. Uh, but at the same time, if they do make statements, we've seen presidents uh, at colleges across the country really face sharp criticism from pretty much everybody mm-hmm. for whatever it is they do or don't say. Well, you know, we've spoken sort of broadly about college campuses, save for, of course, the incident at Cornell. So I want to speak very specifically about an incident that took place at Harvard University. Now, as I understand it, um, in the immediate aftermath of the October 7th attacks, or maybe not immediately, but not too long afterwards, um, a group of students on campus released a statement putting the sole blame for the Hamas attack on Israel, or at least the government of Israel. And that created a significant backlash, correct? Yes. So a group of uh, a collection of student groups wrote this this letter and said that this was, you know, what, what happened on October 7th was the fault of Israel's government, full stop. And there was great outrage on campus at Harvard that uh, you know, that these groups were blaming Israel for a massacre and uh, a massacre against Israeli civilians. And there were immediate calls for the president, for the administration of the university to step up and to denounce these student groups, to say what they, you know, that what they were saying was inappropriate, was wrong, was not supported by the institution. The the challenges, the institution prides itself on being um a champion of free speech, even mm-hmm. when that speech is uh, ugly. And you saw great criticism of the university for not coming out emphatically enough, quickly enough, uh, aggressively enough against the student statements. And uh, there was criticism that they didn't, you know, that they didn't call Hamas a terrorist group quickly enough, that they didn't say these students are in the wrong. And we saw kind of this piled on very quickly. We then saw um, a group driving around near campus with a truck showing the names and faces of people who were members of these organizations whose leaders had signed the letter. And it later came out, you know, some of the students who are members were members of these organizations, they weren't the ones signing the letter, right? The presidents of these groups were, and somehow speaking on their behalf, and that put them in a really tough position. Now, I'm also wondering, because uh, as we've sort of discussed and you've laid out a very clear case, there's been a lot of emotional reaction in regards to uh, the war with Israel and Hamas. But college campuses seem are supposed to, again, as we've discussed, be a place for debate. And so I'm wondering, to your knowledge, have there been any universities that have been able to use this as and I hate to use the phrase, but a teachable moment to fully lay out and help the students fully understand the wide breadth of the history and the story that led to this moment? Or are people just in a very sort of emotional reactionary place still? I think we are still in that emotional reactionary place for the most part. There are exceptions. I wish the list of schools that I could cite here was longer. But there are some schools and some groups that are holding teach-ins, you know, panel discussions on the history of the region, on how we got to this moment, on the creation of the state of Israel, on 
humanitarian efforts, on the legal definition of terrorism, things like that, you know, taking a very clear academic intellectual approach to the situation. But some efforts at that have been stymied by protests, by groups saying you're you know, your take on this is skewed. This isn't really an academic discussion. So let's just shut it down entirely. But there have been some efforts at places like University of Chicago, at Brandeis, at a handful of other schools, we're seeing usually faculty-led efforts to just have an honest, informed conversation. And finally, speaking of, uh, you know, the way that universities operate and what they're able to do. We've also seen that donors are playing a big part in the way universities react, don't react, statements they release or statements they don't release. Is that correct? Absolutely. And that gets into kind of presidents can seem to do no right these days in terms of what kind of comments they make or don't make. You're seeing major donors, major uh, generally Jewish, Jewish donors who are supportive of Israel coming out and saying, to the president of the, their alma maters or schools where they've given millions, tens of millions of dollars saying, you're not saying enough, you're not speaking strongly enough. I'm going to stop giving you money if you don't say something soon. I'm going to end this partnership that we have because I don't think you're supporting Israeli students enough. Um, I think you should step down. We're seeing this at places including Harvard, including University of Pennsylvania, Stanford University. So these are schools with uh, some very well-known powerful donors who are saying now is my moment to to take a stand and my university should be doing the same all right well melissa corn i want to thank you so much for your reporting and of course we look more forward to more from you to better understand this very difficult and complicated issue thank you Welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. For decades, it was known simply as The Stroll, a stretch of West 14th Street in Manhattan's Meatpacking District, where transgender sex workers set up shop. For many of the trans women who worked there, this was about more than business. It was a community of people with few other places to turn to for support. In the face of violence and harassment from both customers and the police, they banded together and helped pave the way for today's new era of visibility. HBO's The Stroll is now telling the story of these New Yorkers led by co-director Kristen Lavelle, who once worked The Stroll herself. Here's a clip. Do you remember when we used to walk down here and all the neighbors used to stare at us and we used to be... Mm -hmm. And we would just be fun way. They would look at us like we were circus freaks, but you could tell they enjoyed it. The minute I got off on 14th Street, you could hear the clickety clack of the hills. The life, the light, the shadows. We called 14th Street the straw, and that was our turf. Some people choose sex work because they want to. Being a trans woman in the 80s, a lot of us did not have a choice. People were not hiring people that looked like me. Trans life in general, it was difficult. I wanted to make people understand the reality of our lives through storytelling. The one issue today that obsesses New Yorkers, crime. The trannies were out on the bad situation. I mean, they think I'm out here to murder people instead of have sex with them for money. We don't know who's who. You know, everybody's a client. 
I actually gave fellatio to a man who was a cop. And after I was done doing his deed, he arrested me. Whether it was from the police, whether John, there was a lot of violence. I almost got killed by a John who dragged me for half a block in his car. We were on the front line with the gay and lesbian community, but you're not doing anything to help me from getting attacked. We knew we were freaks to them. I can't even believe it. It's like the things we had to do. The trans community has been in survival mode forever. It's important that we all get an opportunity to thrive. We fought to be where we are. The system never gave us resources. We created the resources. We have always been last. That's not going to happen anymore. You owe it to every trans woman before you and everyone after you to keep pushing. We were pushed out of the neighborhood years ago. I was determined to make a film about the stroll before we're gone. TikToks? No. No, we're talking about our lives out here before this became this. I remember that. Oh! <laughs> he said, I remember that. I'm sure you do. <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> you still got it. For much more on The Stroll, we're joined now by the directors, Kristen Lavelle. Kristen, welcome to Metro Focus. Hello, thank you. Glad to be Absolutely. Here. And of course, also Zachary Drucker. Zachary, welcome to the show. Hey, Jenna. Thanks so much for having us. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. And of course, for this incredibly informative and I would say historical film. Uh, Kristen, I want to start with you and just uh, get your take on, you talk about it at the top of the documentary, but why it was important for you to take control of and share this narrative from your perspective. Because we rarely have the opportunity to be able to share our own stories. You know, we have outsiders from, from our community come in and spin a narrative of what trans life like is like. So it was important for me, you know, after observing the process to have the ability to pick up the camera and take control of the narrative. And Zachary, tell me, where do you come into this story? Like, what was it? Because um, I understand you had a different experience, but what made you want to be part of telling this story? I, you know, working on this film with Kristen has been the honor of a lifetime. I was also a young person in New York City. I moved from Syracuse, New York in 2001. And I remember being a part of a youth, you know, queer and trans youth organizing effort that Kristen led at the time called Fierce, um, which was mobilizing around the queer young people being policed off of the piers as they started to be developed for the Hudson River Project. Um, so that's kind of my entry point. But when I got the call and I knew that um, Kristen was looking for a co-pilot, I hopped on board. I think that the stories of trans sex workers are crucial to understanding uh, trans life. And it's uh, really a universal story. It's, it's not only about this specific neighborhood in New York, um, but there are strolls all over uh, the world in cities and that have existed for um, centuries. 
Kristen, I'm wondering if you could sort of give us an idea of the unique sense of sisterhood that uh, you and so many other women found uh, on 14th Street. I mean, coming into the city as a young person, you know, and especially if you're, you know, coming out as trans or queer, you know, sometimes, you know, you're pushed away, right? And it was important to go out and find people like yourself, right? That you had things in common with and so it's for you to understand that you aren't alone in this situation. You aren't the only one. And I ran into those people that became my chosen family, you know, and we looked after each other those times because we were so uncertain. We didn't know where we were going to get a next meal from or whether this, the youth shelter we were in was going to kick us out at any given moment, you know, we had to stand together. We were dealing with so much at that time as young people. And we built this family. We built this, this cohesion of camaraderie. And you see it in the different groups. And the wonderful thing about the stroll is I was able to capture that. There was, you know, the different groups of girls. You know, there were the Backstreet Girls. There were the 14th and 9th Avenue Girls. There were the Covenant House Girls. You know, and we all interacted with, with each other. And I wanted to be able to reflect. And, and the girls that were living, you know, in the shanty towns, you know, before they were tore down. And so seeing these groups of people and how they played out on the stroll, you know, that's what chosen family is. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, I did mention that I also found this uh, this film, this documentary, to also be uh, historic in nature. And uh, to me, a lot of that was because you made a very clear point to not just uh, tell the story that you and so many of your um, contemporaries experienced, but to also go back into the history of trans women just existing in New York, but also on 14th Street. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us um, something specific or something unique about that history of perseverance of that, yes, we are here and we're not going to be pushed into the shadows. Well, that's what it has always been about, especially being an out trans person and living unapologetically in your truth, right? You know, because in those days, the goal was to pass and to fit into society. And I think a lot of us got tired of that narrative and wanted to just be ourselves and be free. So that's what we started to do. In the process of uh, working on this piece, were there aspects of trans womanhood that you were unaware of that even you were learning in the process of making this film? I, you know, Kristen and I are both history buffs and have really sought out uh, the, the story of trans people through film archives and discovering our predecessors in the archive is just a magical process of discovery. And I wouldn't say that we were unaware of things so much as to encounter figures from the past and to let them speak through time to viewers today is the magic of, of film. Um, you know, that we are eternal when we are represented and when we are documented. And this was a community that was well represented because there was a lot of artists living in the neighborhood so many photographers were photographing the trans community of the stroll and it's an incredible archival document of, of the history of new york of the history of you know gentrification mm -hmm. of 
white supremacy and policing in late capitalism. And it's a real call to action in addition to being an archival and, uh, you know, multifaceted documentary. Of course. And I do want to say that the uh, neighborhood itself does um, become almost a character as uh, it goes through its own transformation um, and is virtually unrecognizable to the way it was, say, in the 70s, 80s and 90s. But Zachary, I just want to stay on you for a minute and ask one of the things the film also touches on. And in some places it goes in deeper, but other places it touches on. And that is uh, trans women's representation in pop culture. Um, this is airing on HBO, and so did another very popular show, Sex in the City, which did touch on this particular neighborhood. How do you think pop culture shaped the way people viewed not just uh, the girls on the stroll, but just trans people in general? I would say that it shaped uh, it very negatively for the most part in the dominant uh, mainstream television and film narratives, uh, trans folks have been the punchlines of jokes and have really been on the outskirts of stories at best. Um, we've been victims and villains. And in the kind of trans tipping point, there was a real erasure of trans sex work uh, which was unfortunate because it's so crucial to our survival as a community. When you look back into previous generations, trans people have only ever survived by uh, operating in the underground economy. So this is the reality of trans life. Well, Chris, we only have a few moments left, but if there was something that people were misunderstanding about the trans community and sex workers, what is it that you would want them to get to really understand? That, you know, they make it like, you know, it's a choice that we have or we chose to do these things, right? And yes, we chose to live out unapologetically and, and be ourselves, but we didn't ask for the discrimination, the oppression that we faced, the murders that have happened for simply existing. So we just want the same thing. You know what I mean? Like, I just mm -hmm. want to go to work. I want to have relationships. I want to walk down the street and not worry about getting attacked. You know, it's, it's very simple what we ask and people make it seem like it's the hardest thing to do. Mm -hmm.